Thanks for listening to Great Battles in History. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you. You can write me, Daryl D., at greatbattleshistory at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at The Great Battles. I hope you enjoy the podcast. From its beachhead at the mouth of the Seine, the English army had only a short distance to march to its first target, Harfleur. Today, largely swallowed up by the urban conurbation of Le Havre, Harfleur in 1415 was one of France's most important ports. It was a base for the French galley fleet, and earlier in the century, the Duke of Orléans had chosen it as the embarkation point for a possible invasion of England. King Henry's own plan was to take Harfleur and convert it into a secure English foothold in Normandy. He would then make further conquests in the region with the goal of pressuring the French leadership into conceding to him at least the terms of the Great Peace of Bretigny. But Harfleur was by no means an easy target. The French had been caught flat-footed by the King of England's landing at the estuary of the Seine. With the entire coast between Bayonne and Flanders to defend, King Charles VI's commanders had had to spread their available forces thinly. Harfleur itself, though, had imposing state-of-the-art fortifications. The city's walls and towers, barbicans and gates, were defended by a strong garrison of men-at-arms and crossbowmen, as well as by the citizens of Harfleur themselves. Furthermore, the citizens had flooded the surrounding countryside as soon as they had learned of the English king's approach. The English first blockaded Harfleur by land and sea. Then they opened a hugely destructive bombardment of the city. They employed trebuchets, catapults, and all the usual medieval siege engines. Yet their most effective weapons by far were cannons. Gunpowder artillery had been known since the earliest days of the Hundred Years' War. Edward III had used some light pieces for the first time on a battlefield at Crecy. During the 15th century, the great guns came of age as siege weapons. Though the surviving English administrative records do not specify the type or even number of guns, King Henry had undoubtedly furnished his army with a formidable battery of artillery. The cannons were served by 78 gunners, all recruited from the continent, and supplied with 10,000 gunstones to fire at the fortifications. But the French too had guns, a heavy fire from Harfleur's walls answered the English bombardment. Another technique employed against the defenses was mining. Welsh miners burrowed beneath the walls in an effort to bring them down, but the French dug countermines that reached and broke into the Welsh tunnels. This led to a violent flurry of subterranean combat, which the defenders won. Until the guns opened a breach in the walls, the English soldiers could do little except wait, in their camps pitched in the low-lying, waterlogged countryside around Harfleur. There they soon faced a new threat far more deadly than French gunstones or countermines, disease. With thousands of men and animals crammed inside them, the English siege camps soon became appallingly filthy. The monastic chronicler Thomas Walsingham mentions the rotting corpses of animals slaughtered by the army, floating with other wastes in the floodwaters and causing a terrible stench. Such conditions were ideal for the outbreak and rapid spread of dysentery. Soon English soldiers were falling sick and dying. 
The victims included some of the highest-ranking members of Henry V's army, the Bishop of Norwich, one of the king's most trusted confidants, the Earl of Suffolk, and the Earl of Arundel. In addition, the king's brother, the Duke of Clarence, and the Earl Marshal had to be sent home. Meanwhile, the French were gathering their forces. Since March 1415 and the failure of the Second English Embassy, the French leaders knew that war was coming. The Dauphin Louis took charge of the overall war effort as King Charles VI Captain General. He confided day-to-day conduct of the campaign to three key subordinates, John I, Duke of Alençon, and Charles d'Albret, Constable of France, were both seasoned commanders. The third was the Marshal of France, Jean Le Mangre, who is better known as Boussicot. He was the most famous and experienced French soldier of the day, having notably fought in the 1397 Battle of Nicopolis, in which an army of European crusaders was crushed by the Ottoman Turks. The challenge for the French was assembling enough troops quickly. In the chaos of the civil wars, the army of the reconquest had been disbanded. The French high command had to resort to the traditional methods of calling up contingents from the nobility and the towns. These summons, though, could only be issued once the English army had landed in France. The call to arms only went out on August 28, 1415. Thereafter, troops began gradually arriving in Rouen, the capital of Normandy, and the mustering point of the main French army. The French war effort was further hampered by the enduring enmities between the Armagnacs and Burgundians. Though peace had been declared between the two factions in March 1415, much bad blood remained. The Dauphin wrote separate letters to Charles, Duke of Orléans, the Armagnac leader, and John the Fearless, Duke of Burgundy, asking them to send companies of 500 men-at-arms and 300 crossbowmen each to the army. However, Orléans and Burgundy were not to come in person. The Dauphin feared that their presence would lead to a renewal of infighting. Furthermore, he and King Charles worried that Duke John would seize control of Paris while the royal army was away fighting the English. By the middle of September, Harfleur's condition was desperate. The English guns had so battered the walls that an assault appeared imminent. Henry V had warned the garrison and people of Harfleur that he was conducting the siege according to the biblical laws of Deuteronomy. If the city surrendered, everyone in it could expect mercy. If the English took the city by storm, they would put the defenders to the sword and despoil the inhabitants. On September the 18th, Harfleur asked Henry for terms of surrender. The English king declared that unless a French army arrived within four days, the city must surrender unconditionally. But the growing French force at Rouen would not march to the city's rescue. Its commanders refused to fight a battle on ground of King Henry's choosing. On September 22nd, Harfleur surrendered. For three weeks following Harfleur's fall, a vigorous debate raged in the English Council of War over what to do next. The siege had taken longer than expected, and winter was approaching, which would make supplying the English army increasingly difficult. Further conquests in Normandy, which would have required more sieges, now appeared out of the question. Most of the English commanders were in favor of ending the campaign, putting a strong garrison in Harfleur, and returning home with the rest of the army. King Henry thought otherwise. 
the first sign that he wanted to prolong the campaign appeared on September the 26th, when he sent a message to the Dauphin challenging him to personal combat. To the victor would go the crown of France. Henry declared that he would wait at Harfleur for eight days for the Dauphin's reply. Such a reply never came, as the King of England no doubt anticipated. The Dauphin, Louis de Guienne, had recently commanded against the Burgundians and had put in a credible military performance. But he was better known for his devotion to sleeping, feasting, drinking, gambling, and whoring. He regularly rose at four in the afternoon, then joined his companions in another night and morning of dissolution. His entertainments had made him so enormously fat and unfit that he was in no state to make an appearance on the dueling ground. His lifestyle would contribute to his premature death in December 1415. Henry made his challenge in order to further humiliate and enrage the French by demonstrating the contrast between England's warrior king and their flabby, unwarlike prince. The eight-day interval also gave Henry valuable time to make up his mind about what to do next. King Henry finally decided to carry out a fast march from Harfleur to the English stronghold of Calais. Such a move had many advantages. It would draw French forces away from the Valley of the Seine, giving the English time to strengthen their grip on Harfleur. It would permit the English army to return home by the Calais-Dover route, the shortest and most economical sea crossing, hardly an insignificant consideration for a king who was short of funds. Perhaps most importantly, a march to Calais through enemy territory would burnish Henry's reputation and further humiliate the French, who had already been dishonored by their loss of Harfleur. Did Henry V want a battle? Most historians believe that he did not. They concede that while Henry knew his march would risk an engagement, he did not actively seek one out. They argue that the king must have realized he was seriously outnumbered, and his own army had been weakened by the siege. He therefore hoped to march so fast that he would appear to court a battle, yet safely outdistance his enemies to the haven of Calais. Furthermore, Anne Curry points out that if Henry wanted a fight, he could simply have moved against Rouen, which was just a short march down the Seine and was the mustering place for the French army. However, Clifford Rogers makes a convincing case that the English march to Calais was in fact part of a battle-seeking strategy. Henry V had the examples of Edward III and the Black Prince in mind. These glorious predecessors had won crushing victories despite being heavily outnumbered. Furthermore, just as Poitiers had led to the Great Peace of Bretigny, Henry's ambitious war aims virtually demanded a great battlefield victory. What Henry needed was to fight the French on his own terms and on ground that allowed him to make full use of the English tactical system. Henry set out from Harfleur on October the 8th, 1415. He left a strong garrison of 300 men-at-arms and 900 archers to protect his new conquest. He also left there his siege train and all his heavy baggage. His army was traveling light, with just enough pack animals to carry food and other supplies for eight days. As for the size of this army, a recent controversy has erupted. Anne Curry has asserted that it was much stronger than previously believed. Employing her masterful knowledge of the surviving English administrative records, 
Curry calculates that from the nearly 12,000 troops that Henry originally brought to France, 2,568 troops had to be deducted for the dead sustained during the siege from combat, as well as illness, the invalids sent back to England, and the Harfleur garrison. She concludes, We can prove that Henry still had over 8,680 soldiers with him on his march and at the battle. This figure is far higher than the numbers most other historians accept. As we shall see, Curry also argues that the French army was at most 12,000 soldiers. Together, her figures create a very different Battle of Agincourt than the David and Goliath clash usually portrayed. I don't buy Anne Curry's figures. Her calculations, I think, suffer from two flaws. First, the English administrative documents, indenture contracts, muster lists, records of inspections, sick rolls, pay receipts, and post-campaign reports are sadly incomplete. Second, the number Curry gives for dead from all causes at the Siege of Harfleur is only 36. This seems unbelievably low, especially because dysentery had ravaged the English siege camps for weeks. This disease was a scourge of armies right into the 20th century. With good medical care, which the English army at Harfleur definitely did not have, the mortality rate from dysentery might be reduced to 10%. Otherwise, rates were typically 25% or even higher. That many more men succumbed to the disease than are found in the surviving records is suggested by the high-ranking figures such as the Bishop of Norwich and two earls who did die from it, and others, including Henry's own brother Clarence, who had to be sent home. By virtue of their social rank, these men would have been far healthier than the common medieval soldier, received what medical care was available, and had access to a much better diet, a crucial factor in fending off dysentery. Lower-ranking English soldiers would have been far more vulnerable to infection and death. I therefore think it more likely that losses from dysentery at Harfleur, either killed or incapacitated and sent home, amounted to thousands of English troops. The army that Henry V led out on October the 8th thus likely consisted of about 1,000 men-at-arms and 5,000 archers, as historians have believed all along. King Henry V expected his march to Calais to take just eight days. The first stage went according to plan. The English army dashed along the coast of Upper Normandy on the most direct route to Calais. This march was not a chevauchée. The English troops did not maraud and pillage on a large scale, which would have slowed them down. French forces began shadowing the English army soon after it left Harfleur. Although these forces made scattered attacks on the marching columns and inflicted a few casualties, they did not slow the English progress. Things began to go wrong for King Henry and his army when they neared the Somme on October the 13th. The king had intended to cross the river near its mouth, at the ford of Blanchetac, just like his great-grandfather Edward III for Crecy 70 years before. Ten kilometers from the ford, a Gascon prisoner was brought in and interrogated by Sir John Cornwall, one of the army's toughest fighters. The Gascon revealed that Charles d'Albray, the constable of France, was at Blanchetac with 6,000 men and had strongly fortified the crossing. At this news, Henry ordered the army to halt and called a council of war. This council decided to turn away from Blanchetac and seek another crossing of the Somme further upstream. 
The French had guessed what Henry was doing and laid a trap for him. The Duke of Alençon, Constable d'Albray, and Marshal Boussicot had rushed up to the Somme ahead of the English. They had broken down most of the bridges and causeways and occupied most of the crossing points. Their plan was to force the enemy army to fight against the river and destroy it. Blocking the fort of Blanchetac was a major coup and a promising beginning. There now followed a deadly cat-and-mouse game. Henry V and his army hurried along the south bank of the Somme, searching for an unguarded crossing. A considerable French force under Constable d'Albray and Marshal Boussicot shadowed them from the north bank. With each day that passed, the English were moving upstream and inland, further away from the sanctuary of Calais. They also grew increasingly hungry, having taken only eight days' provisions with them. The French were in no hurry to bring their foes to battle. They were constantly receiving reinforcements while the English became weaker. The growing desperation of the English is vividly described in one of the best sources on the Battle of Agincourt, the chronicle called the Gesta Henrici Quinti, written by a chaplain who was accompanying the king. At that time, we thought of nothing else but this, that, after the eight days assigned for the march had expired and our provisions had run out, the enemy, craftily hastening on ahead and laying waste the countryside in advance, would impose on us, hungry as we should be, a really dire need of food, and at the head of the river, if God did not provide otherwise, would, with their great and countless host and the engines of war and the devices available to them, overwhelm us, so very few as we were, and made faint by great weariness and weak from lack of food. Why didn't King Henry attack the French forces in his way? After all, if Rogers is right, the King of England intended the march to Calais to bring about a decisive battle with the French. Yet Henry did not want to fight a battle on terms and on ground imposed by his enemies. Like Edward III and the Black Prince, he needed to fight on the defensive on a battlefield of his own choosing in order to make the most of the English tactical system. On October the 17th, the English army passed close to the walled town of Corby. The town's powerful garrison launched an attack. In the skirmish that followed, the French took the standard of Aquitaine, which was a humiliation for Hugh Stafford, Lord Bircher, the standard's bearer. The honor of the Birchers was restored by a young kinsman, John Bromley, who pursued the French, recovered the standard, killed two enemy men-at-arms, and captured two others. The capture of the two French men-at-arms proved to be a great stroke of luck. When interrogated, they disclosed a critical part of the French battle plan. To counteract the huge numbers of English longbowmen, the French commanders had, as described in the Gesta, assigned certain squadrons of cavalry, many hundreds strong and mounted on barded, or armored horses, to break the formation and resistance of our archers when they engaged us in battle. King Henry immediately sent out an order that every archer was to prepare a wooden stake, two meters long, and sharpened at both ends. When a battle was imminent, each archer was to hammer one end of his stake into the ground in front of him, leaving the other end pointed at waist height toward the enemy. A fence or palisade of stakes would be created that would impede or even block a cavalry charge. The English had been using improvised field fortifications to protect their archers against cavalry since the beginning of the Hundred Years' War. At Crecy, Edward III had protected his longbowmen with rows of hastily dug pits. 
At Poitiers, the Black Prince had carefully chosen the battlefield so that his archers were covered by hedges and marshes. But the Hedgehog of Stakes was new, and it had been first used in the east. At the Battle of Decapolis in 1397, the Ottoman Turks had guarded their Janissary bowmen and stopped charging Crusader cavalry with a dense field of stakes. News of the Turkish stakes had been disseminated widely across Europe by the Livre de Fées of Boussicot, a biography of the French marshal. It is one of the ironies of the Battle of Agincourt that Marshal Boussicot might have inspired one of the English tactical innovations that contributed to the French defeat. Around the time that King Henry ordered the stakes prepared, he made a decision that would completely change the plight of the English army. He decided to abandon the south bank of the Somme and march rapidly across country to the town of Nell. On October the 19th, at Nell, he learned of an unguarded crossing. Henry and his army rushed there and found two causeways over the Somme. The king immediately ordered his men to cross. They began at 1 p.m., and by nightfall, they were all safely over the river. Henry had given the French the slip in the nick of time. The French had concentrated their army at the walled town of Peron, just to the north of where the English army crossed. When they learned that the English had managed to elude them, the French commanders met to decide what to do next. At this council of war, the trio who had been conducting the campaign so far, Constable d'Albray, Marshal Boussicot, and the Duke of Alençon were joined by numerous other high-ranking French nobles who had arrived at the army with their armed retinues. They decided they would bring the English to battle as soon as possible before they reached Calais. Conspicuous by their absence at Peron were King Charles VI and the Dauphin Louis. A decision had earlier been made not to risk them in battle. Also in the French leaders' minds might have been the threat of a potential coup by Duke John of Burgundy. The king and prince therefore had remained at Rouen, within easy reach of Paris. But another eminent member of the royal house of Valois was hurrying to the army. The king's nephew, Charles, the Duke of Orléans, and the leader of the Armagnac faction. He was defying the Dauphin's order to stay away and was bringing with him his powerful household army. At this point, I'd like to pause to offer up a correction. In the trailer of this episode, I mentioned that the Oriflamme, the ancient battle standard of the French kings, was present at Agincourt. Once I read more about the battle, I realized I'd made a mistake. The Oriflamme had indeed been brought out of its place of safekeeping at the Abbey of Saint-Denis in September 1415. The standard's bearer, Guillaume Martel, Sire de Bacqueville, was killed at Agincourt. But, in the words of Anne Curry, the king was not present in person at the battle, so neither was the Oriflamme. Presumably, it remained with Charles VI at Rouen. It would be used in many later battles of the Hundred Years' War. On October 20th, the English halted to enjoy a well-deserved rest after their exertions of the past week. Suddenly, French heralds appeared at their camp. They delivered messages to King Henry, summoning him to battle. The chronicler Jean Lefebvre, who is with the English army, summarizes this dramatic event in this way. The dukes of Orléans and Bourbon and the constable of France sent three heralds to the king of England and informed him that to help him achieve his desire, they had approached him for they knew well that, even from the moment he left his own kingdom, his desire was to give battle to the French. 
Moreover, they were three princes of the royal house of France, who were ready to deliver and provide for his wish and what he was seeking. If he wished to appoint a day and a place to fight against them, they would be pleased to have him do so. The details should be decided upon by the representatives of both sides, and should not give unfair advantage to one side or the other, for such was the wish of their king, their sovereign lord. To our modern eyes, this challenge seems utterly counterproductive. By issuing it, the French seem to be giving up the precious advantage of choosing the time and place of battle against a vulnerable enemy. But this invitation to a journée or a day of battle was an indispensable part of the conventions of chivalric warfare, much like Henry's challenge to the Dauphin to personal combat. Much like Henry's challenge to the Dauphin to personal combat. Just like that challenge, the letters of the French princes were designed to give them and their troops a moral and morale advantage in the engagement that was soon to come. According to Lefebvre, King Henry received the heralds with joy and replied, If the princes of France wanted to fight with him, there was no need to appoint a time or place because they could find him any day they liked in open country and without any hindrance. More practically, the king now donned his armor and ordered all his troops to do the same. On October the 21st, the English army resumed its march for Calais. As they trudged north and westwards, the weather was cold, with bitter winds and unrelenting rains. Passing beyond Peron, the English could not help but notice that the muddy road was rutted and churned up, marking the passage of thousands of French troops who had rushed ahead of them to choose a battlefield. Three days later, October the 24th, the eve of the feast day of Saints Crispin and Crispinian, amid heavy downpours, the English army crossed the Ternois River and climbed a steep hill. When they reached the crest, Henry and his soldiers saw the sight they had long been anticipating and dreading. Just a half mile ahead, the French army, in serried ranks and with banners flying, filled a wide field between dense woodlands. The road to Calais was blocked. The English would have to fight. 